spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today, I have a treat for this audience. You know, I pride myself on bringing the best guests to this platform. And we have a fairly good track record, but today I feel like we may just have outdone ourselves. Allow me to present to you political powerhouse, scholar, and activist, Shaira Kala. Shaira? Thanks, Sizwe. You're really <laughs> overselling me here. <laughs> not at all, not at all. Comment below if you think she's being oversold by the time you get to the end of this. I suspect I know what comments are coming, but thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the platform. Thank you, the pressure is on now. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, so, you have just come back from Oxford, and more on that later. But of course, you exploded onto the scene during Fees Must Fall, during that crazy time in our country where it felt like everything was in tumult. And I think a lot of people know you from that period, but that period was quite a long time ago now. I was like, Fees Must Fall was like five years ago. What's, crazy. what's going on? It's crazy. I know, right? Um, and maybe people don't know as much about who Shaira Kala is and what you think after that moment. Um, and maybe that was intentional on your part. Um, I guess being thrust into media spotlight can be really daunting. And I know from family proximity, it can do a whole lot. Um, but tell us a little bit about the story since Fees Must Fall and, and how that incredible journey that you went on affected you. Yeah, I mean, there's no simple way to, to answer this question because so much has happened in the past few years. Mm. But I think the big thing for me is that I realized quite early on after 2016 and the traumatic way in which the movement didn't come to an end but really crashed into an end mm. um, given the state violence and the demonization in many ways that we as students faced. Mm. Um, and that oscillated because at some points we were demonized, at some points we were, you know, kind of heroized, mm. if that is a word. Mm. But there, were, there, were, there weren't any balanced understandings that these were human beings who were just trying really hard to disrupt an unjust status quo. Mm. And so nothing's changed in me wanting to do that. But I've realized that I had to put myself in spaces where I can grow. I mean, one can't be a student activist forever. The space is transitory. You yourself would know, you know, mm. coming from your background. And, mm. you know, um, a lot of people I spoke to advised me that it would be good to go away and to have a different perspective and to then come back and look mm. at things from new eyes. Mm. And it's always interesting. I think that um, Adiba once said that um, there's something very special about leaving a place and coming back and it remains unchanged, but you look at the way that yourself, you know, you yourself have altered. Mm. And for me, coming back home from doing my master's in Oxford, I definitely feel that it was a valuable decision, that mm. I grew a lot. But Oxford in itself was very traumatizing in other ways. You'll know this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a space which refuses to acknowledge its own complicity in creating the way that the world is today. Mm. Um, it's also a university that uh, prides itself in being one of the oldest, when in fact we know because we understand, we read, and we, you know, have a, a consciousness of decolonial understanding of reality that the first university in the world was founded by a Muslim woman in Morocco, in Fez, um, Fatima al-Fehri. So 
being there with that consciousness was was good because mm. I feel like if I had gone there as a young undergrad um, expecting to receive this world-class education, I might have um, put too much of faith in what Oxford had to offer. Mm. Given that, though, it was really hurtful and as, as much as it was special, it was hurtful that we have to go all the way to Oxford to be in a class with students from all over the African continent. Mm. And mm. that's really the, the most valuable part, the people that you meet. Mm. Um, so I, I love Oxford for that reason and there were certain parts of it that I, I really enjoyed. But uh, we need to be critical as to why we don't have that opportunity here at our universities in South Africa and across the continent. Mm. There's a lot of work to be done. It's amazing to think back to that time. I want to come to this Oxford stuff because oh, we could go all day about Oxford and I suspect we'll, we'll have a lot to say about what that's like because I'm sure a lot of people watching are maybe thinking about going overseas for studying. But, you know, just when you were talking about the kind of way that the movement crashed to a halt and the way that you were demonized in a way that kind of is totally out of your control, you know, so this image of you is put out into the world, the media kind of revs it up and you have no control over how that goes out. Um, what complicities do you think the South African media plays in some of our crises of inequality? Because it seemed to me that the conversation around fees must fall, while there were some nuanced pockets, mm. just played this extremely polarizing role and really denuded the, the movement of nuance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's the same kind of thing we're seeing um, across the world at the moment. I mean, if you look at what's mm. happening in Brazil, if you look at what's happening in Kashmir, um, in India, you know, students are protesting and society has erupted against the Citizenship Amendment Act, um, which we can talk about later. But what I'm getting at is this, these contestations are very much universal. Mm. They're universal challenges that young people in general face globally. and when I think back to the way in which South African media dealt with us, there were definitely some nuanced perspectives. And I don't think that our media is as controlled in many ways uh, if you compare to what uh, the Indian media you know, is going through, or if you look at Brazil as well. Mm. Uh, we still have a very strong independent media. And what was very valuable during Fismas Fall is the Daily Vox and the role that they played mm, mm. in um, really being on the ground with us. I actually had a newfound respect for journalists mm. during that period because many of them were dodging rubber bullets and tear gas mm. with us, you know, mm, mm. and were really trying to um, document what was going on on the ground. Mm. So I, I was quite happy with, with certain media groups mm. Um, even journalists from more popular media houses that were there. Mm. Uh, but uh, in general, there's just a lack of understanding about what the structural issue we raise is. And from the very beginning, it was the assumption that what we were asking for was impossible and idealistic. Mm. And I think mm. the one victory of Fees Must Fall is that it makes people realize, just like the Treatment Action Campaign made people realize before, and many other movements, even if we look at the anti-apartheid movement, that people have power and that politics doesn't mean something outside of us. We are political beings. And if we make a decision that we are unhappy with a system, and if we come together and organize ourselves and mobilize ourselves, we can actually make a big change and we can shake the core of an unjust system. Mm, mm, absolutely. And I wonder how you 
look at vids now. Um, Professor Habib, who was uh, <laughs> an interlocutor of yours, someone who you know uh, you were at loggerheads with often, has just announced his resignation. Um, and so in some ways, that era in many ways is coming to an end. I spend quite a lot of time in Wits and, and the feel is, is, is one of a different era. Mm. Um, how do you look at Professor Habib's resignation? How do you look at his legacy, given that you were probably the foremost student leader um, who challenged some of the decisions he took during his tenure? If we want to look at anyone's legacy, I think we have to look at what they leave behind, right? And uh, if you look at Wits today, the student movement is completely demobilized. There is a rise in surveillance. There's also a real pressure on progressive academics. And you can read yourself in Habib's book the way that he paints academics who are very sympathetic to the call for free decolonized education. I think ultimately we did what we thought was best. As student leaders, we came forward and we fought for what we thought was right. And we brought ideas and Professor Habib and the state and other vice chancellors brought guns and repression. Maybe he might have not said things explicitly that pushed for more violent uh, force to be used against students, but his actions by bringing police onto campus genuinely did. They speak for themselves. Uh, for themselves. Um, so I think history will judge Professor Habib's legacy, um, just like it will judge us, and I hope that it will be just. Well, let me move on to more current events um, and ask a little bit about your views on South Africa today. It feels to me like the Fees Must Fall moment and that movement and that era was pulling at some of the assumptions that we hold as a country that maybe stabilized the first 25 or 20 to 25 years. And we were starting to have a really honest conversation about where we are. And I'll just put this to you. I feel like we've now done the exact opposite. It's almost as if we've intentionally forgotten all those tough conversations and are now reliving a kind of Rainbow Nation 2.0, but not quite as cool as it was at the beginning. Um, not that it was cool, but this version is like watered down. Where do you think we are as a nation, and how do you sum up some of the crises that, that we face? So I, I oscillate between being hopeful and being optimistic and then being tired and full of despair. Mm. Um, and that is what it is to be South African, oh, <laughs> one of the most <laughs> unequal countries in the world. Mm. Everywhere you look, um, you are confronted with that inequality. Mm. And it is very disconcerting because eventually you see people become desensitized to that inequality. And that is my biggest fear, mm. that I should become desensitized towards the inequality that we see around us. But what's very hopeful and what gives me a feeling um, and a sense that things aren't um, going to just disintegrate into this sort of abnormal normalcy mm. is the fact that not just young people but everybody has been challenged time and time again to rethink the assumptions and the norms that govern our society. 
and if I can be a bit philosophical, mm. um, Iranian, uh, an Iranian revolutionary thinker and philo um, uh, Ali Shariati was one of the leaders um, in, in leading intellectuals in the Iranian revolution, uh, speaks about four factors that really determine the destiny of a society. And the two most important of those are the people, as in the masses, and the norms, as in the structures and the laws that govern the society and the way that they're implemented or not implemented. And I think that if we really look at those two things in South Africa, there is room to be hopeful because things are happening, but I don't feel that there's a sense of urgency. And mm. you, can th you can see that in, in, in a small example in the SONA, right? I mean, I know that the president is in a tough position in many ways because there are factional battles and there's also a financial situation that we're in that, you know, nobody would want to be in. Sure. But there's no real understanding of placing our role as South Africans within a broader context, within a more long-term vision. So it's easy to then come with this kind of populist fourth industrial revolution rhetoric that says, oh, we need to build a smart city um, and we need to, you know, build it from the bottom up. <laughs> but we're not even engaging in the bigger questions around surveillance capitalism and what that means in the context of smart cities. Mm. And the fact that we have actual cities that need to be developed and that people who need to be served with basic things like water um, and the destructive way in which mining corporations have damaged our natural resources, the unequal ecological exchanges that have taken place, which is part of the reason why London has so much of money and we have so little. And this is something that Patrick Bond, Professor Patrick Bond brought mm. to, to our atten attention when we looked at uh, uh, the analysis of illicit financial flows and that actually that isn't even half of it because we haven't looked at the ecological damage that so-called development has, mm. you know, mm. has brought upon us. Um, and the World Bank and the IMF and these global forces are still seen as the be-all and end-all. But at the, you know, you can understand the way that we are positioned as, as a country, but we also need to, be, we need to be a bit more disruptive in our thinking, a bit more creative, a bit more innovative and imaginative about the role of the state, but also the, the, the way that we engage with activist groups, the way that we include uh, communities in coming up with policy and coming up with uh, solutions. So this top-down, um, fashionable, kind of rhetoric that we've seen is, is disturbing because at the end of the day, and we'll talk about my, my research mm, area, mm. but at the end of the day, when we look at technology and when we think about the fourth industrial revolution yeah. and um, the way in which it's playing out in the world, it can either make the world a much more equal place or it can make the world a much more unequal place. And it's tending towards that much more unequal place. Mm. And that is against everything that I feel needs to happen. Um, and, you know, going back to Biko as well, Africans can teach the world how to live in a much more dignified way. To give these, these technologies a much more human face is, I think, our role. And I don't think we're doing that. So even if you look at Senegal, they've now got, uh, you know, it's been lauded as a huge uh, victory in renewable energy because they've got a, a wind um, farm that's okay. been put, put up. Um, and it will give, I think, a sixth of the, of the energy that they need. 
But that wind farm was 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 basically solicited um, and built by a, a British company. Uh, I don't know all of the details that relate to this mm. deal, but what I can tell from this is that as long as we're not interested in the infrastructure that is needed to serve our communities and to serve our people, we'll always be consumers and not producers of these technologies. And that for me is, is where my current interests are mm. in terms mm. of my research, but also my work. That's, that's quite fascinating. Um, when you talk about a more global context, I think there's virtually no conversation in our country right now about how technology is exacerbating our inequalities, how apartheid is becoming digitized, as it were. But also, when you talk about a global context, you've just come back from the UK, where you know Jeremy Corbyn mounted a spirited campaign, has really shifted the Labour Party from a kind of centrist to a far more progressive left vision mm. of the world that people thought was like dead from mainstream politics. You've got Bernie Sanders, you know, trying to build some kind of far more progressive movement than centrist Democrats have in the past. Where do you think South Africa fits in this question of global politics and what contribution can we make to this sort of global trend which is starting to of course, there are other global trends, mm. which is which are dangerous and deeply right, and I'm sure you'll mention some of those too across the world. But where do you think we fit in the way that global politics is evolving and changing? I think that will depend on what we deem as normal. So that's mm. what goes back mm. to the, the more philosophical question. There definitely are people in our society who have good ideas and who are willing to put in the work to define and to really draw out on you know on paper and even look at the implementation of these new disruptive ideas that mm, serve mm. the many and not the few if i want to use the language mm, of corbin right mm. um Too i much do time in the uk <laughs> <laughs> well um so we can we can definitely they are the people mm. right but are we willing to give those opportunities to the right people mm. are we willing to reconsider <coughs> cater deployment and mm. are we willing to move towards a more meritocratic uh, system of, of, of governance? Um, so that will be the defining factor mm -hmm. around mm. where we fit in. Because we can either be sitting on the sidelines and having things dictated to us and our resources can still be plundered and we can focus on extractive growth uh, which has not served the people in any way, yeah. or we can put our foot, a foot down and say, we actually do have a vision, a long-term vision for where we want to see ourselves going. There are really good ideas that young people have, but also people who've been around for a long time, who've been deliberately silenced and, and ignored mm. in, the, in the spaces where it matters. Um, and honest people, you know, who've been gutted because they have not been able to tow party lines or to allow corruption to continue. Mm. Um, if we're willing to make that change and if you know we see that the state is uh, willing to, to deal with, with the forces in our society that are extremely destructive, then we can talk. But otherwise, I see us falling into the wayside mm. where we're just kind of there and our resources are continuously exploited, but there's no real engagement with 
disruptive ideas and we'll, we'll continue to try and compete with other African countries rather than, you know, realize that we need to be collaborating and coordinating ourselves and organizing ourselves, going back to the principles of Pan-Africanism as well. Mm -hmm. So tell us then a little bit about your research, um, some of the work that you are doing at Oxford, because I know it fits into this way in which the digital economy can entrench inequality. So I did my research on domestic work, uh, but I focused on domestic workers who are working on a digital platform called Sweep South. Mm -hmm. uh, and I looked at Sweep South through the, the prism of platform capitalism. And platform capitalism is basically uh, digitized capitalism. So it's uh, uh, Sweep South themselves consider themselves an Uber for domestic work. Right. So it's a platform where you can go and book a domestic worker and that worker will come and do some work for you, but a portion of their salary will go to the company who just plays the role of an intermediary um, and doesn't actually have to put anything on the table. Um, so the transport, the data for, for using the platform, all of these things are, for, um, are basically uh, paid by the people who use the platform, the domestic workers themselves. Mm. There definitely are some benefits to this. So it's not all negative. Sure. I have to put that on the table. Um, and I'm not in any way attacking the company itself, but I'm looking at the model mm. and, and mm. questioning mm. it critically to ask whether this platform capitalist model is something that works in our context. Because I think what often happens is that we see that there's a model that's working somewhere and we bring it here, mm. but we realize that in South Africa, most Uber drivers don't actually own the cars that they're driving. So how equitable is, is that model then, mm. right? Mm. So we have to understand the structural inequalities. What I really think is important about this research, though, is that domestic work has remained a rather invisible sector, even though it's the fastest growing sure. services sector mm. globally, sure. domestic work. Okay. Um, and it's remained invisible because it is migrant labor. It mm. is really, uh, you know, um, it, it, it sits at the, next, at the nexus of apartheid geospatial planning, of gendered performativities mm. of labor mm. and their continuation. Um, it looks at uh, social reproduction theory. It also brings into uh, focus the fourth industrial revolution mm. Mm. and so-called technologies that will give us prosperity and growth. Right. And, and puts that, you know, those things in conversation with each other and really questions those things. Mm. So, um, what I think is important for us as, as South Africans is to understand that the personal is very political. Mm. And a lot of us either know a domestic worker, have employed a domestic worker, or are related to a domestic worker. Um, so, mm. you know, there's, there's this real sort of important focus that needs to be made on how domestic work can make us think critically about the system we live in from a very personal perspective. Because at the end of the day, these are poor black women who are forced to clean the homes of people while leaving, often leaving their, 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 their own families and their mm -hmm. children, and then looking after other children, you know. Um, and it's as old as our colonial history, it's as old as our apartheid past, mm. and now it's being put onto a playing field that is very much new age and modern. Mm. So mm. There's, there's a lot there, and I think the tensions that can come up in that can tell us a lot about ourselves, mm. but also about the political economy of development more broadly, 
and um, maybe even make us question better ways to, to organize um, these platforms. Mm. So I'm exploring as an alternative to platform capitalism, the idea of platform cooperatism, cooperativism. Okay. So that is basically where the workers themselves own the platform. And so there's a very different way in which it would be managed, um, in which the algorithms would be defined, because mm. at the moment the algorithms are completely focused on ratings, which are very much heavily in, in, um, in favor of the customers and the clients mm. rather than the workers themselves. It's, it's fascinating because um, there's this book, um, Moxie Land by Lauren Bukas, and it's, it's all about how apartheid survives in this techno future. So apartheid carried on, and I always have this nightmare that like had the apartheid government held on for like another five to 10 years for the technology revolution to kick in, they would have actually been able to persist like in perpetuity, like the surveillance architecture, Facebook, can you imagine like the apartheid government and Facebook, it would have just yeah. been. Um, and that's why South mm. Africa has such an important voice in calling out mm. the genesis of apartheid systems that are being mm. kind of uh, created in India at the moment by the Modi fascist government um, in Bolsonaro's Brazil. But also um, if we look at the annexation of Kashmir by the Indian government um, and the uh, complete, uh, you know, decimation of any uh, peace process that could potentially give Palestinians their right of return and um, some sort of semblance of justice uh, through Trump's announcement, right? Mm. And the, the peace deal, peace deal. Mm. Um, so South Africa has a very, very strong voice in, in the international community given our experiences. But is there really an international community? That's the more philosophical question, uh, I guess we can go into. Yeah, it's led by President, led by President Trump right now. So, yeah. um, look, let's 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 move let's move away from the orange maniac um, yeah. and and the network of of crazy things that are going on in the world right now. I'm glad you brought them up, but I want to come to somewhat more personal question because, like, I don't think you fully appreciate like how many people were looking to you, not just to you, of course, to a network of leaders who were so central at that time, but it was like nothing South Africa's ever seen before, you know, and, and many people thought it was impossible. And then suddenly, almost out of nowhere, this movement erupts that like finally changes so much about, you know, what we're doing. Um, and, and then it, it grinds to a halt. And then you go to Oxford, which is like, worlds apart from all that's mm -hmm. happening and just what 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 was that like for you and and is that professor habib <laughs> <laughs> definitely not <laughs> the man's probably blocked me <laughs> um and how how do you feel you have changed as a person you know since since you took a decision to step away from the spotlight to focus on yourself to educate yourself uh, abroad, now you're back. How have you changed as a person? So much, because you often find that when you're in the spotlight, mm. you start going in directions that you never really saw for yourself. 
And easily mm. what can mm. happen is that your whole life trajectory is planned out and you mm. kind of just go and follow it. Mm. And I'm not saying that um, for me that there was like a, a short trajectory at any point. I'm very much someone who makes decisions based on what I feel is right at the time. Mm. Uh, obviously, I'm an overthinker. I even overthought coming on to this interview. <laughs> but uh, well, we're glad that but, you reached the right conclusion. But I, because I'm an overthinker, I, um, I was very uncomfortable with the fast pace in which things were moving. Mm. And so um, having to take a step back was more me being myself than, you know, trying to stop myself from, from changing or anything mm. like that. Mm. But I was also very worried about um, being in political spaces that uh, completely uh, eliminated my autonomy mm. to think critically mm. as an individual, but also um, there wasn't any political organization that I could say I felt um, I identified with 100%. Sure. Um, and I, I, I just, needed to understand what structural change really meant because while I definitely see that Fees Must Fall was effective in many ways, there's still protests taking place at our universities today mm. and the issue of historic debt has not been resolved and there's so much else that still lingers. Um, so I think I, I, I just felt that what what happened was important um, and there definitely were necessary wins and you know claim tell no lies claim no easy victories and all of that but at the end of the day there was a lot that i felt was left un, you know mm. un, not dealt with mm. uh, efficiently and so i didn't feel that going into um, a position uh, politically would be the way that these issues have are won Mm. And I also mm. didn't have the energy to continue at a grassroots level mm. because I was just so burnt out. Mm. Mm. So that's why I think I needed to go away. And now coming back, I am rejuvenated in a sense because I do have a lot more energy and mm. I am uh, a bit less cynical or I'm trying to be. That's one of the things I said that mm. I'm going to really challenge my own cynicism. Um, on a matter of principle, because even as a Muslim, you know, you strive for social justice regardless of the outcome, mm. and the ends never, the means never justify, uh, the ends don't justify the means. So there's those two principles that really are guiding me, and I've been dabbling in documentary form, tapping into a more creative side, something mm. I never thought I'd do, but I always revered so much. I mean, growing up, I'd watch films, uh, not just documentaries, but even political films. Uh, from all over the world and that really colored my understanding of society and I think it's important that we uh, take storytelling more seriously, take the arts more seriously, um, our cultural heritage and the diversity that is so unique in it, um, in a world that is going, returning to uh, this, you know, forced homogeneity of the nation state um, and uh, homogeneity of the nation state. Um, so I very much see myself um, not just as a local um, activist, but also um, connecting the dots and looking mm. at a more global picture because all struggles are connected. And so I think I've changed in the sense that I was looking at a very local movement and a part of a very local movement. And now I think that things could be so much more powerful if we look at it um, differently. And how does, how does Islam 
feature in, in your activism. You know, um, the Muslim community in South Africa doesn't always cover itself in glory and it's implicated in, in a lot of our own society's problems. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Islam is often portrayed in very extreme terms, both locally and internationally. Um, and often people's faith is kind of erased when they do amazing things. Um, and you're someone who, who has always maintained that your faith matters to you. How does that, how does that work for you? It was never something I consciously did because uh, I was just trying to be as honest as possible about who I am. I never really had time to put together a persona that I wanted to present to the, to the country or mm. to the world because in some spaces we did get international coverage as a movement. Mm. But um, I also felt that it was important because for me, Islam is not just a religion, it's a way of life. and. In that way of life, in every single story that we're told, the central component is often social justice. And it's speak out against uh, injustice, even if it be against yourselves. So you have to be very critical of your own community as well. And I think that's where someone like Shamima Sheikh is, you know, uh, someone I look up to as well. Because as an activist back in the day, she was someone who challenged her own community. And it takes a lot to do that. Mm. Um, and I still am engaging with the legacy that she's left behind. Um, she passed away, um, you know, an, in an untimely way. And I, I, I still think there's so many other women in our history who can guide us in some sense about being authentic and living authentically. Um, but for me, that, that was really just me being as honest as possible mm. um, about who I am and, and why I think the things that I think and, and do the things that I do. And then where to from, from here? I, I know there's an NYDA mm. um, board yeah. position up for grabs. Yeah, um, also overthought the application. <laughs> but eventually it was yeah. friends and family that really pushed me towards okay. it. So, um, so talk us through that yeah. and, and, and why you... Um, I think it's a very important institution. Mm, um, sure. And it's one that, you know, being on the board, you still have a semblance of... You, ha you have an independence in that, you, you know, mm. you're not um, answerable to any political organizations mm. or parties. Mm. Um, that, you know, so for me, what was also interesting about the application is that there were a lot of questions around, you know, tangible things that you'd like to see. And I wouldn't want to jump into that in this interview because the process is still ongoing, but sure. also because I am doing a lot of research mm. about youth development agencies. So, I mean, I'm doing a lot of research and reading, and this is also the year that the strategy for the next term um, will be impl mm. will be discussed and you know um, will be created. So it's a huge opportunity in that sense. But at the same time, I really hope that um, meritocracy will be considered. So it was a very wary application, but I'm 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 glad that I put it through and you know eventually even posted about it, which I wasn't going to do. But yeah. Well, wishing you all the best with that. And um, can I just thank you so much for taking the time? I'm glad, despite the overthinking. Yeah. The conclusion was to come onto the show. Um, I think people will benefit greatly from hearing your views. You know, I think people are just really desperate to hear a different set of views um, from a different generation, quite frankly. And I think you represent that to a lot of people. So appreciate, appreciate you coming on. And um, 
Hopefully it won't be the last. But don't worry, I won't ask you like next week. It might be like a few months or like next year. Like yeah, let me do something interesting and then... <laughs> Should she it's come always, back? Comment always, below. <laughs> it's always easier to talk about work that you're doing yeah. than, than talking about yourself. No, you for know? sure. So for sure. That's, yeah. But thank you so much for having me. Not at all. It was good chatting. It was. It was. What did I tell you? We keep delivering. Comment, like, share, subscribe. Help us grow this channel. Spreading the fire is all we can do. We rely on word of mouth. Keep spreading it because the fire is spreading and it's starting to become a wildfire. Thanks for watching the content. Like, share, and subscribe on all platforms. smwx.co.za to join the WhatsApp channel. And let's build a new conversation for a new generation. I hear you.